From New York's Hudson River Valley, I'm Ed McCann, and this is Read 650. Read 650 celebrates writers and the spoken word, five minutes and 650 words at a time. On today's show, we explore the theme of birthdays with original true stories from writers John Gredler, Catherine Mayer, and Robert Multhrup. It was my ninth birthday, and for the first time, my father would be taking me out. Just the two of us. Are we still blowing out candles in this pandemic party era? I think not. After work, I walk slowly from my office to Tavern on the Green, where a hip person gives hip parties. People come to see each other and be seen and see men in drag. And on today's Between the Lines segment, Anne Levin describes her family's unique way of commemorating birthdays. My mom was born on May 29th, and every year, as the day drew near, my siblings and I would frantically email each other about writing a birthday poem. That's all just ahead on Read 650. Your birth was your beginning, and celebrating the anniversary of your arrival is an expression of thanks, an opportunity to refresh your outlook, and a chance to bond with people. Birthdays are much more than an occasion to receive gifts. Each one is also a touch point, a mile marker in a life in progress. And today we present birthday recollections from three talented writers. First up is John Gredler, who responded to our birthdays prompt with an indelible memory from the day he turned eight. A small party of sorts featuring alcohol, a firearm, and a car accident. Here's John Gredler reading Hit and Run. It was my ninth birthday, and for the first time my father would be taking me out. Just the two of us. His car was a metallic blue 1964 Chevy Impala with a black convertible top and leather upholstery. I loved that car, loved to run my hand over the raised chrome Impala SS written on the rear fender. Sitting up front in the bucket seat next to Dad, I felt grown up. As Dad backed out of the driveway, he told me we were going to have dinner at his friend Brooks' house. He did not see my disappointment. Brooke came to the door and led us into his den. There was a zebra-skin rug in front of a stone fireplace. Three glass-eyed deer heads stared down from above the mantel. A collection of rifles was mounted on one wall. A display case held various pistols and knives. In the corner was a bar with several stools also covered in zebra. Brooke poured drinks for himself and Dad, doers on the rocks in heavy-bottomed glass tumblers. He told me to help myself to a Coke from the little refrigerator behind the bar. They sat drinking and smoking cigarettes. I went and looked at the guns. After a while, Brooke noticed me. You're old enough to handle one now. He took a silver revolver with a rough black grip from the case and put it in my hands. 
The weight of it and the coldness of the metal surprised me. I almost dropped it. He showed me how to open the chamber and spin it, and warned me not to pull the trigger. I sat on the itchy rug for a long time with the gun in my lap, opening and closing the round chamber, mesmerized by its concise click. Later, Brooks said he was going to make me a man's stew. He cut up unpeeled carrots and potatoes and tossed them into the pot with the meat. By the time he served it, I was starving. It tasted like dirt. My mother called to say we should come home. Dad told her we'd be leaving soon, but Brooke poured him another drink. When Mom called again, I could hear her voice through the phone from across the room. I'm not drunk, Dad growled, hanging up hard. Brooke was laughing. It's late. I'd better get the kid home. I dozed off on the ride back. The screeching brakes woke me as we slammed into another car. I flew into the dashboard and dropped to the floor. Dad veered off the parkway onto an exit that happened to be nearby. I watched him from the floor as he sped away, his eyes darting to the rearview mirror. You all right? Before I could answer, you're okay, you're okay. I crawled back into my seat. I was more scared than hurt. He was driving very fast. I held onto the door as tightly as I could. In the garage, we both stood staring at the front of the car. The blue metal on one corner crumpled. The chrome bumper bent. The headlight shattered. Don't say anything to your mother. I'll get it fixed in the morning. When Mom came into my room to say goodnight, she asked me if I had a good time. I couldn't stop myself sobbing and told her what happened. She comforted me, running her hand through my hair, telling me it was all right. She made sure I wasn't hurt, then went to find Dad. As I lay in bed, I listened to their raised voices muffled through the wall. Later, Dad came into my room and sat on my bed. You ratted me out, he said in a sad voice. He sat for a long while, staring at the wall, then reached behind and squeezed my arm. You're okay. You're okay. John Gredler is a poet and essayist and a frequent contributor to Read 650, a recipient of the Catherine Gerfine Fellowship from the Writing Institute at Sarah Lawrence College, John's work has been published in Atticus Review, Narratively, The Sun Magazine, Westchester Review, Talking, Writing, and others. John and his family live in Tuckahoe, New York. Some families develop their own special traditions around birthdays, maybe serving a breakfast in bed or planting a tree or creating a homemade card. And writer Catherine Mayer's family 
has created their own unique birthday ritual. Here's Kate reading, Not Bad for Store-Bought. My dad's giant fat finger slices through the smooth, silky frosting. It doesn't matter whose birthday it is. He bends to table level, his thick glasses and bushy beard just inches from the cake, and he whispers to the kids huddled around, we gotta make sure it's not rotten. And then he swipes one fat calloused finger through the icing and jams it into his mouth, silently contemplating his palate before roaring, delish, it's a good one. We turn this tradition into a verb, miking the cake. And now that he's long gone, the kids he taught to mic the cake have kids of their own. And instead of crying if someone sticks their fingers into Carvel Fudgy the Whale or a sticky, sweet, funfetti cake, they fight over who gets to do the miking, the traditional family taste test, before songs can be sung and the cake can be cut. Is this gross? Maybe. Definitely now in the era of COVID. I didn't grow up with dessert at every meal, but always on birthdays with loud, obnoxious singing and fingers sticky with frosting and everyone huffing and puffing to extinguish the candy-colored candles. Are we still blowing out candles in this pandemic party era? I think not, but once upon a time, for birthdays not so long ago, blowing out candles on the communal cake was customary. In our house, recycled candles were pulled from the icing their waxy bottoms licked clean before being tucked back into their plastic coffin container, faded and grimy with years of forced labor, and then slid under the spice rack, dormant until the next celebration. These melted but still good enough candles waited patiently for the next birthday song, when fat fingers miked a cake to confirm it was indeed good enough, and pictures were snapped to be added to a fridge covered with itty-bitty magnets pinning down happy memories. Sometimes the cake was fresh from the bakery. Fancy in a white box with a window on top where you could see Happy Birthday written in curly-cued script with delicate icing roses with pastel petals that tasted as good as they looked. We'd cross and double-cross our fingers calling dibs on the flowers after the cake was miked. When I was a little girl, I remember visiting Aunt Florence in Florida and we brought a fancy bakery cake and one bite in, Uncle George, her three-pack-a-day husband, didn't even look up from his plate. When talking with his mouthful, he mutters, it's not bad for boxed. I didn't know there was other options. My future mother-in-law did. Visiting her, I would never show up empty-handed. I was raised better than that. For years, I brought baked goods, not mine. Instead, I took goodies from their white boxes with red twine, and I arranged them on my own plates, breaking off little pieces here and there so they looked homemade, before covering it with saran wrap and presenting as an offering, silently praying, please like me. She'd take a taste and with zero hesitation mumble, not bad for store-bought, not once or twice, but many times, brushing crumbs from her fingers. It wasn't an insult, I don't think, just an observation, but I couldn't help but be embarrassed at my bakery blunder to win her affection. I had hoped my treats would win me a spot on her fridge, where she displayed favorite sons and favorite spouses, my photo nowhere to be found even many years later. Instead, birthday after birthday, candles were lit, songs sung, but no one stuck their fingers in the cake at their house. And I can't help but notice, despite everything being homemade, 
and never felt very homey, not to me. Make a wish, they say, and I do, for birthdays of sticky fingers and loud laughter and crying children mad they didn't get a rose, and plenty of hugs and dirty dishes, the family crumbs that prove happiness is always homemade, whether it comes from the store or not. Catherine Mayer, known as Kathy and Kate, is a potty mouth writer, humorist, and activist, writing out loud about social issues, parenting, midlife, and gun violence prevention at katherinemayer.com. A reluctant inductee into AARP, she's a mom of four mostly grown and flown kids and an aspiring writer with the rejections to prove it. Her blog is a National Society of Newspaper Columnist Award winner, and her essays appear online and print, and sometimes on refrigerators. She lives and writes in Newtown, Connecticut. Robert Moltrup has clear memories of his 54th birthday in New York City, a day filled with equal parts excitement and dread. Here's Robert reading his contribution to today's birthday show, an essay entitled, A Birthday Gift to Myself. New York City, September 1994, my 54th birthday. After work, I walk slowly from my office to Tavern on the Green, where a hip person gives hip parties. People come to see each other and be seen and see men in drag and do drugs. I want to go. I don't want to go. I want to be there, see him. I don't want to be there, see him. If I am there, people will see me, will know I go to parties where men dress up as women. If I don't go, I will miss him, will not see him in a dress in public. I think it takes courage for a man to wear a dress in public. I'm not sure I have the courage to be in public with a man wearing a dress. He is macho, a strong man with a strong purpose. He is also the opera queen who wears lots of rings and necklaces, goes to leather bars, has a boyfriend, runs a successful business, and loves drag. He is tough and honest, handsome and strong, caring and sensitive. And he likes to put on a dress and makeup and go to parties. The drag queens arrive in taxis and limos. A crowd outside, hustlers, queers, straights, me. The crowd waits and watches. I am surprised by the poise and elegance of these tall, women-looking people. I thought drag queens were guys in bad-fitting dresses doing pantomime to scratchy records or screamers who call each other Miss Thang. These were not, and I am more afraid. My brain lurches. I start to leave, but I stay and watch, and watch, and stay. But no one looks like I think he will look if he puts on a dress. Then, a taxi door opens. First, a large silver high-heeled shoe, then a leg 
in an electric blue stocking, a silver lame dress, a striking pale blonde face with huge blue eyes framed in black lashes behind silver sequin glasses, a headdress, mirrors, spikes, Statue of Liberty. I am confused. This is a shaman, someone old as ritual, someone whose role is fixed and predetermined, someone breathing in ancient air, sure of his pansexual place, thrilling to the feel of body hair beneath a dress, knowing that he represents courage and vulnerability, strength and licentiousness, and something very hip. Then he says, happy birthday, honey. I was hoping you'd be here. Now we'll walk in together and you'll see everything. He is suddenly very tall, his mirrored spikes rising up into the evening. He takes my arm and as we walk, he looks directly into everyone's eyes, testing. See this? You got the courage to do this? And if you did, could you do it this well? He dispenses smiles, lavishes twinkles, extends his warmth and security. I am with him, and I am, therefore, part of the charm. If I leave his side, I am afraid I will vanish, sucked into the black vacuum of the night. I hold his arm tightly and notice for the first time his blonde mustache, now fading into dramatic white powder makeup, overshadowed by carefully applied ruby lipstick, overlooked by dramatic eyes behind the sequin glasses. And suddenly I feel a longing want to hold him, want to make desperate love with him right now, here in the midst of everyone, so we will forever be part of each other and I will gain his strength and courage. But I am afraid. And for the moment, all I can do is continue to walk by his side. Robert Molthrop is a fiction writer and playwright. His plays have won awards for writing and performance at the New York International Fringe Festival, and his short fiction has been published in journals and publications, including Tahoma Literary Review, Read, Berkeley Fiction Review, and many others. He lives and works in New York City. Our executive producer is Richard Kolap. I'm your host and Read 650's founder and executive editor. Our editorial team is Stephen Lewis, David Masello, and Lisa Donati Mayer. Our announcer is Fran Tuno, and Jim Russick and Sarah Caldwell help produce the show. If you like this show and want to hear others, follow us on your favorite podcast app. You'll be able to catch up on episodes you may have missed, like siblings or dog stories, and you'll get new ones delivered directly to you, along with a carton of hot, fresh buffalo wings and a bottle of Malbec. Coming up right after the break, it's Anne Levin with Between the Lines. Stay with us. 
Support for Read 650 comes from the National Arts Club, whose mission is to stimulate, foster, and promote public interest in fine and performing arts. Feature programs focus on all disciplines of the arts, and the National Arts Club hosts both members-only and weekly free public events, including exhibitions, theatrical and musical performances, along with lectures and readings. Learn more at nationalartsclub.org. In Anne Levin's family, birthdays meant one thing and one thing only, writing the dreaded birthday poem. It's a tradition started by her mother, for whom it seemed effortless. Not so much for Anne or her siblings, who felt deadline pressure as the fateful day approached. For today's Between the Lines segment, here's Anne Levin with The Birthday Poem. My mom was born on May 29th, and every year, as the day drew near, my siblings and I would frantically email each other about writing a birthday poem, a family tradition started by her. An hour before a party, she'd sit down and dash off a clever piece of verse. She dismissed it as doggerel, but it always brought down the house. One of her favorite tricks was to adapt the lyrics of popular tunes, especially Cole Porter's. For her best friend Adele, who was widowed very young, she once wrote, You're the top, you were mama and papa. You're the top, rough times didn't stop you. When Ma's birthday rolled around, Adele returned the favor. Had Cole Porter known you, what might he have written? Because once he knew you, he too would be smitten. Pretty soon, everyone wanted in on the act. Even my dad took a stab at it, writing a poem for Mom one year that celebrated her recovery from cancer. He did it by rhyming that nasty lymphoma with, We've got you at home, ah. After my parents died, we kept up the tradition. When my brother-in-law turned 65, my sister wrote one that killed it at the end. On your next big one, if I'm not senescent, I promise no doggerel, just a nice present. You may be wondering, why not just buy a gift card? Two reasons. People love it, and the bar is really low. Practically anything with a sing-songy rhythm and halfway decent rhymes will have people thinking you're the next poet laureate. So, in the spirit of my mother, I offer up these tips for better birthdays. First, consult an almanac for the year the person was born and work with the material. My mom was born in 1926, the year Hemingway published The Sun Also Rises which Adele rhymed with Sinclair Lewis declining Pulitzer Prizes. Second, get acquainted with RhymeZone.com, where you can plug in an ordinary word like birthday and find dozens of rhymes including Battle of Midway and Radioactive Decay. Lastly, find an anthology of English verse then model your poem after one that's instantly recognizable, like William Blake's The Tiger. As you're sweating it out the night before the party, consider that it used to be quite common for people to recite poems for public occasions. And remember, the bar is really low. 
Anne Levin is a writer and editor who worked for many years as a journalist, including as national news editor at the Associated Press. Before that, she was a reporter for the San Diego Tribune and several other newspapers. She continues to review books for the AP, as well as for USA Today, and she's at work on a memoir. You can see her work and learn more at annelevinwriter.com. Between the Lines is a regular feature of our show where all writers can contribute their thoughts on writing and their writing life. We'd love to hear from you. For details, click the submissions tab on the website, read650.org, and also check out the open submission calls for our upcoming shows. Read 650 isn't just a nonprofit literary organization with a mission to promote writers. We're also a growing community of writers and readers and listeners, and we'd like for you to join us. Scroll to the bottom of our homepage at read650.org and share your contact information to receive our semi-weekly newsletter. I'll share information about upcoming events and open submission prompts, but I'll never share your email address, and you can unsubscribe at any time with a single click. If this sounds good to you and you'd like to be part of our community, then please join us because we'd love to have you. And we'd love to have your help spreading the word about the spoken word. That's our show for today, and we thank again writers John Gredler, Kate Mayer, Robert Multhrop, and Anne Levin. For more Read 650, please follow us on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn. And thank you so much for listening today. I'm Ed McCann, and this is Read 650.